Welcome to Women Who Protect, a series within the Ontic Protective Intelligence podcast. In a profession largely dominated by men, we spotlight women working in a wide range of positions within security, protection, and law enforcement. We'll hear their stories, discuss their accomplishments, and get their advice for women and girls who may be interested in a career in protection or security. I'm Dr. Marisa Randazzo with Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. After nearly three decades of experience working in security and protection, first at the U.S. Secret Service, and then in the private sector, providing security guidance to corporations, educational institutions, and high-profile individuals, I know firsthand the immense value that women bring to this field, and I know the challenges that we face. I look forward to sharing the stories of women who protect and hope they inspire other women and girls to join our ranks. Now, on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Marisa Randazzo, and I'm here today with Wendy Bailey, manager of Capital One's threat management team. As part of her role, Wendy assesses and manages workplace violence, intimate partner violence, and suicide concerns. She established and spearheads Capital One's efforts in intimate partner violence awareness, both nationally and internationally, and she leads Capital One's care team as well. Before transitioning to the private sector, Wendy spent 19 years in law enforcement and held various roles, including 14 years as a detective. She's a certified threat manager through the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals and holds a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Virginia Commonwealth University. Wendy, welcome to Women Who Protect. Thank you. I am happy to be here. Good. Um, so as this podcast focuses uh, in large part on all the different roles that um, women have played and can play within security and protection and law enforcement, I want to start at the beginning. Tell me how you got into the field of security in the first place. Yeah. So um, I have a degree in criminal justice, uh, which was intended to be a degree in chemistry uh, when I first started <laughs> out. Uh, my intention uh, was to um, work in forensic science, um, and that didn't exactly work out for me. I, I learned <laughs> that while I really had a, a desire and an interest to do that type of work, the lab portion wasn't wasn't right for me. So mm-hmm. I, I made the decision to change over to criminal justice while I was in college. Um, in Virginia, you know, you have to be in law enforcement to actually work crime scenes. So, um, so I went that route. Uh, I spent 10 years with Prince George County Police Department, uh, where I actually did, um, go through the Virginia Forensic Science Academy, um, and got certified, became, I was a detective. I did a lot of crime scene work. Um, I worked in narcotics for a while. Um, I moved on after 10 years there to Hanover County Sheriff's Office. Um, where I spent nine years still kind of focusing in on that crime scene type work. Um, and, you know, I got to a point, even though I, I had not completed my 20 or my 25 or whatever the goal is, a lot of times for people who are in law enforcement, I, I was ready to move on. Um, mm-hmm. So I started looking at my corporate options and uh, landed at Dominion Energy um, right after I left um, Hanover Sheriff's Office. 
I was a senior investigator there. I ran the threat management team there. Nice. Um, I, at one point, I actually oversaw the executive protection team. Um, so I had a lot of different roles there and, you know, really found that my desire and my, my like, where I was really drawn was threat assessment and threat management. I ran the threat management team and it wasn't a full-time thing. It was kind of like mm-hmm. a side, you know, project, if you will, or a side responsibility. And um, started looking for something where I could really focus in and and do more um, work in the threat management um, world. So I, I came to Capital One um, two and a half years ago. I am a threat. I'm a manager with a threat management team, and that's my my sole focus is the threat management team. I do lead our care team um, as well, and you know have really expanded in a lot of areas within our organization when it comes to intimate partner violence and some of the things that we're able to provide support for for our associates. Oh, that's fantastic. For our listeners, I'd love for you to give kind of a, a brief overview of what is threat assessment and threat management, and then also I'd love to hear how that differs from the care team. Right. Okay. So our threat management team um, is responsible for anything that comes into the company that um, generates any type of threat. Now, whether that's against an associate from an external party, whether that's internally, um, we also deal with associates who um, are in intimate partner violence situations and those who are contemplating suicide, those who come forward with suicidality. So, you know, our role and our purpose really is to support and to help and to provide those resources that can make those associates who are in those situations, you know, productive employees, right? We're not looking to, um, you know, it's not punitive. We're not trying to get Mm -hmm. people in trouble. Um, We're really, we really want to get ahead of any potential threat that could be, um, you know, put uh, an issue for Capital One. So we are uh, really focused on awareness. Uh, and mm-hmm. the more awareness that we do, the more our cases go up. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> people understand how to report and what should be reported. Um, we are, this past year, 2023, we had a 30% increase in our cases. Wow. Um, we there's We're a small team. Uh, we have uh, our leader and five threat assessors and we worked 900 cases um, in 2023. And, you know, I really attribute a lot of that to the awareness. The more teaching we do, um, the more we get the word out to people that, you know, if you, if you notice that someone is struggling, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're violent, but that could mean that they need help. Um, So, you know, come forward and, and, and talk to us and let us know so that we can, um, we can provide that those resources and that support. Um, the care team is something that w- is new to Capital One. We just started that in May of last year. We're not we're not quite at our year anniversary yet, um, but we had the uh, you know we did everybody does the preparedness drills. You do the tabletops. You you do the active threat um, exercises, and you know when you sit down and you look at where your opportunities are, um, we noticed that our opportunity was you know what do we do after the fact. Right. Oh. So, you, you know, when everything's over, now we have to take care of the people who are who are here are left behind, injured witnesses, the families mm-hmm. of those folks. So um, we put the care team together specifically for a potential casualty situation where we could liaison with our internal resources and external partners and 
be able to help them help our associates, right? So we've done a lot with building our relationships with um, agencies where we have Mm. people centers, um, understanding what their procedures would be in that type of situation and how we can potentially plug into that to to make it easier for them um, and be prepared, you know, in case we really need that support for, for the families. Oh, that's fascinating. And I have not, this is the first time I've actually heard about this model of a care team being kind of a more, more focused on recovery and, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of repair and resilience. Um, it, it's interesting because in that, in the higher ed uh, sector, you hear about threat assessment teams and care teams and the distinction there, they define care team as more of a lower level concern. So right. you've got someone who has a, you know, an undergraduate student with an eating disorder and they're, creating concern among their roommates and and professors. You've got a, you know just someone disruptive in the residence hall, et cetera. So they're lower level concerns. And then those are often escalated to a threat assessment team or threat management team. Hearing the model you described, though, is fascinating. And I think it is such a, I think a really important sign of the level of care that Capital One is giving to all of its employees to say, we're even thinking ahead about what our team, what our employees may need in the event of something tragic happening and the support going forward. And that's, um, it's, it's, it's commendable and it's a model I had not yet heard about. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in the industry, um, benchmarking and and doing some different things and, um, you know, I've not seen anything similar. Um, and we're hoping that, you know, we're, we're going around and, and doing presentations and telling people about how we're preparing and what we're learning and, and how we have, you know, it's multidisciplinary. Um, it's our HR professionals. It's our associate relation professionals. We have someone from communications. There's threat management team members. Um, so, you know, really bringing in different skill sets. Um, and so that we have an understanding of what resources are there um, and building the relationships externally is what is is super important. Yeah, it's interesting because I I've, um, have done similar recovery work in, in sort of two different major no- domains, one after a mass shooting at a university years ago. Um, and one of the things they found so helpful was they, they had... Um, an external employee assistance program. And at the time, there was sort of a you know debate, do we want our EAP folks internal? Do we want had to have our folks to have someone called external? They realized quite accidentally, but having an external agency was incredibly helpful because A, they had that external vendor had more resources they could pull upon and bring in to help in, in the aftermath of the shooting. And then in addition to that, they also realized that they wouldn't have that that arm's length relationship meant that their providers, their EAP providers, weren't necessarily directly impacted because they weren't on campus when this tragic event happened. So, so they really saw benefit to that. Um, the other was in in my federal law enforcement career post nine eleven, um, working with teams within our agency that were significantly impacted. They continue to be operational, but we saw several months after nine eleven real impairment in leadership in some units, but leaders not wanting to step away, still wanting to be there for their their employees, for the people they were leading, but being largely unable to do so. And, and so looking at ways like, how do you support your teams? How do you do business continuity, but still allow that important human connection? So the fact that you all are thinking through this is just um, incredibly, incredibly commendable. Yeah. 
Yeah, we've talked to, um, you know, we talked through initially, like, do we, because obviously we have an EAP organization that has surge capabilities that we we will we would definitely mm-hmm. lean into. Um, but, you know, do you want to bring in a crisis response type contractor yeah. that can help with this? And And we felt like having the person sitting in front of either the family of or a victim of you know, a situation like this, when they say, well, who are you being able to say, well, you know, I'm with Capital One was extremely important to us. So that was, that was kind of the deciding factor on why we stayed internal with that piece. Yeah, Yeah, I could see that. Um, Tell me what you like about threat assessment, threat management. What, what has drawn you to this particular work and where you've decided to focus your yeah, I, I think what I, I mean, obviously, you know, the curiosity piece, being a detective for so long, um, <laughs> liking to dig into things and, and you know, trying to put the puzzle together. You know, I believe it or not, it is very, it is very similar to forensic work, right? Mm-hmm. It's finding all of the pieces that are there to be able to answer the question. Um, but then there's also the victim advocacy aspect of it that I don't think a lot of people who are familiar with threat assessment really understand um, that you know we have to do what we can to support people who are potentially you know going down that pathway to violence. Um, getting involved early and being able to provide the support can can de-escalate someone yeah. who's in that situation. So I think that's the other piece of it. And that's kind of how the care team kind of folded in was just that advocacy and and that support aspect and, and being able to, you know, do both, do the investigative portion, but also be able to, um, and, and, you know, and coming from a smaller police agency, um, initial, my initial agency as a detective, we didn't have victim advocates. Like yeah. we worked with the families of our victims and we were those advocates. So it's very similar to when when I was working as a detective, working um, crime scenes. It's just a different aspect. Uh, and I like the fact that it's proactive rather than reactive. Mm. Yeah. yeah. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. In the world of safety, security, and protection, we know that sharing information is crucial. That's why we created the Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. The center is a hub for the ongoing exchange of security strategies and best practices, insights on current and past trends, and sharing valuable information through expert discussion and analysis. It's made up of subject matter experts with decades of experience across a wide range of disciplines. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. I want to hear more about the investigative aspect because this is it's what fascinates me about threat assessment um, generally is, is looking for those pieces of the puzzle. So tell me, what do you do? What does your investigative research look like? Yeah, I mean... Anything that's available that I could potentially use, we we will leverage it. Um, it, it when we get a case, um, say it's just a, you know, I say just, but say it's a, um, a, a associate who was threatened by a customer. Mm-hmm. Um, we use all of our tools that we have available to us internally to learn as much as we can, um, you know, about what's the history. Has there been some sort of 
pattern with this person of bad behavior. Um, but then we're also looking at all of our external open source um, information, um, anything through social media that we can put our hands on. Um, and, it, you know, there comes a time where you're like, okay, what am I missing? And do I need to keep digging? Um, you know, and that's, that's one of the things that yeah. bothers me sometimes. It's like, I don't know what I don't know. So if I miss something, um, yeah, there has to be a balance between that and really going too far into it and, and digging too deep that maybe yeah. you don't need all of that information. So trying to balance that um, with the investigative portion. And of course, your people, you know, talking to your people, doing interviews, talk, talking to those folks who are affected and and being able to correlate that back into, you know, the big picture um, and making a decision on risk level. I can imagine that the tools that you've used to do this research may have changed or evolved since you since you first got into law enforcement to where you bit. are now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to show my age here, um, Marissa. Um yeah, so when I first started as a detective, we were using landline telephone uh, records and yep. pager records. <laughs> Those were what was yep. available to us, you know, and then moving through the years, you know, people started, with, I worked on um, some child pornography type cases early on and trying to learn that whole process with, mm. you know, the computers and I'm talking about computers with towers and, you know, the, yeah. the old kind of, the old kind of computers and, you know, the social media didn't really hit until I was probably well into my detective career. And that was something that was a big learning curve is trying to navigate that and understand how much out how much is out there and and how to really tap into that and inform your investigations by using that yeah. it's interesting because i i've been in the field a similarly long time i i think i've been in the field 30 years now so i've seen a similar evolution and and when social media really started to catch on you know, looking at it now investigatively, I see it as both a blessing and a curse. Um, you know, social media is, is often often plays a, a, an aggravating role in threatening situations or reveals information about a person's whereabouts that like, please don't post, you know, <laughs> wait until you're back right. from that trip. You know, please, if, if you're being stalked, please don't post your plans for Friday night. Um, but at the same time, from a threat assessment standpoint, from that investigative research standpoint, there's often a wealth of information that you can look at with with things that are often, you know, publicly available. There's you don't have to go through special procedures. People are posting these things publicly or you've got concerned coworkers or friends who are bringing screenshots to you to take a look at. Um, and it's fascinating to me because in so many of the threat cases I've worked, the thousands of cases I've worked over the past 30 years, People who are planning to engage in violence, as, as you were pointing out earlier, are often people who are at a point of real personal crisis. And they are, they're often vocal about that. They're putting things out there. They're putting things out there publicly viewable about their violent plans, about their wishes, about their suicidality. And it allows us to take that preventative action. Yes, there are cases where the only thing you're seeing is, is stuff that they're posting on, on the dark web, for example. Um, but the vast majority, at least in my case experience, have been people who are publicly vocalizing, verbalizing, publishing in some way their interest in violence, their intent, their level of desperation and crisis. So you're, you're, you're able to take that information from those investigative research tools and piece it all together and, and, and really try to take some preventative action. 
Yeah. Yeah, we see a lot too, and it's a lot about the context too, right? Yeah. You see something that's posted on social media and it can be determined, you, you know, to be not concerning um, to one person and then another person reads it and they interpret it a different way. Um, so that's where the, you know, that's where the people skills have to come in and where you have to start with those interviews and having those having those discussions and having those conversations to really get an understanding of where they're at and meet them where they are to be able to support mm -hmm. them and, and and help them with whatever crisis that they're dealing with. So do you talk directly with your your the threateners, the 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 POIs, persons of interest that you're investigating in your threat cases? Some we do. Um, we choose, you know, we don't do all. We have yeah. uh, our process really allows us to make that decision based on the case. Um, we do have a forensic psychologist who is um, on our team. And if we have any questions where we might need a full assessment, we have that available to us as well. Um, but if it's if it's necessary and if it's needed, we we do have those conversations with our with, with our um, POIs. Yeah, it's interesting because it de safety is such a paramount concern there, and there are situations you absolutely don't don't want to put someone in a position where they're having those conversations. Yet at the same time, often those conversations can be like the first <laughs> can be kind of the the first point of, of de escalation of of really showing up and listening to someone who is at a breaking point because they feel like they can't solve their problems, no one's listening, or the company's the source of of their, you know, their poor situation right now, whatever the case may be. Um, but it can be, it can be really, really helpful if it's safe to do so to talk with people in those situations. Yeah, absolutely. And the de-escalation is key and getting people to understand that you know, we're we're not, and it's hard sometimes, you know, just the title, like, who are you? Well, I'm with the threat management team. <laughs> exactly. And they're like, well, you know, people that, that takes people back a, a bit and, and trying to recover from that and say, well, you're not in trouble. People automatically assume that because you're with, with your, you're with security or because threat is in your name, um, that there is, you know, some sort of underlying, um, you know, punitive part of this, um, process. And, really getting people to understand that that's not the case is, um, you know, important from the start to build that relationship. I mean, we have people that we have supported through certain situations um, that, you know, I have one in particular that it's two years in and I'm still talking to her on a regular basis. So, I mean, it just, it just depends on the situation and, um, and that, it builds up your caseload, but it's one of the things that, you, you know, you just have to do to be able to make sure people can stay successful in their roles. Um, so one thing I wanted to, to focus on here is um, tell me about your your biggest challenge in terms of, of investigative research for this work or, or this work generally. Where do you see the, the most challenging aspect? I think the, I mentioned it earlier, not knowing what you don't, you, you don't know what you don't know. Um, it, part, part of it is coming from a law enforcement background. I know how much information is out there that I don't have access to, um, you know, being in a corporate um, and being a civilian, you know, I don't have access to those databases that I had when I was an investigator in law enforcement. Um, and I know they're out there, but I can't see them um, and I can't get that information. So that is, you know, one of the things that 
it, again, it goes back to your relationships with your with your um, external partners and making sure that we have the ability to get those extra pieces of the puzzle that might be missing. Um, that's to me, that's like the that's a huge lift. That's a big challenge with our investigations is just not having all of the information that is really out there. And I'd say one of the things that I've I've seen over the past, especially the past couple of years, is that the, the volume of POIs, cases, persons of interest that um, teams have to attract has really started to increase considerably. And part of it may be that awareness that you were talking about. But how are you experiencing that? And what, what tools or tricks or strategies do you have for managing a, a growing caseload? Yeah, we have definitely, our caseload has definitely grown. Uh, and I agree with you. Um, it, over the years, it has, I think it's just a difference in um, society as a whole that we're seeing an increase on top of the awareness and the, and the other other pieces of that. But, you know, for us, being able to leverage our Intel um, team to help take some of that research part off of our plate, um, really being able to um, get that partnership strong to where that, you know, they can do some of the, the long-term monitoring for us. Um, you know, I'm looking at a Facebook page of somebody who I was dealing with a year ago and, you know, checking that on a, a weekly or a monthly basis, it, you know, it, it becomes time consuming. So trying to find strategies to manage that caseload. I mean, thankfully, um, it's recognized within our organization that we are we need to grow and we have been given the opportunity to add additional uh, resources to our team. Uh, but not everybody has the opportunity to do that. And really trying to prioritize um, is is super important. Like what's the, you know, the phone call threat that came in where the person who was threatened is offshore, is not in the United States, um, is really not the most important thing on my plate when I have somebody who said they're going to walk into a branch and, you know, yeah. today to do whatever, you know, whatever threat they make. Um, so that's a huge piece of just trying to make sure that we're not missing anything and that we don't have anything fall through the cracks. I think it's such an important point that you just made because sometimes our noisiest cases are not our highest risk cases. Right. And you may have, certainly in my case experience, you all have cases where someone is emailing a whole host of people at, at a company. And so creating a lot of fear and creating feelings of, of that this is maybe unsafe, but you actually do an assessment and say, okay, there's not a risk here. There's not a risk of violence here, not a risk of self-harm there's disruptive behavior that I want to have to change. But if you've got limited resources on small teams, as so many organizations do, to be able to figure out, I need to focus my resources right now on the cases where I think they're, they do pose a threat and there is a risk of violence or self-harm or both. Um, and I can educate the people who have to to open those emails or I can use my IT team to redirect those emails redirect. so I can yeah. still see them and they aren't disruptive anymore. Um, but but it can be a real challenge for threat managers to make that distinction between cases that that really do need need your full attention right now yes. to mitigate risk versus are causing disruption and and weeding weeding C suites to say we just need to yeah. fire them. <laughs> or just well, yeah, oh, it's it's managing the fear really is yeah. is a, a big piece of it is having and, and a lot of that is the education right getting them to understand why we're saying that they're a, a, a low concern or they're, you know, they're, the risk level is low. 
Um, but it's definitely a lot of fear management. Um, I, I want to shift just as we sort of look to give some guidance for people who may be listening for, um, for women and girls out there who might be considering a career in, in security and law enforcement, what advice would you have for them? Lessons learned from your end, definitely do, definitely don't, <laughs> anything like that. You want me to answer that in like two minutes? Or <laughs> we can do a second episode yeah, on it. <laughs> yeah. No, um, you know, I think it has been, I mean, it's been good for me. It's been a good career for me. Um, I feel like I was always encouraged when I was younger that I could do anything I set my mind to. And I think that's an important aspect for me as to why I was able to be successful because it wasn't easy. Um, I went into the law, into law enforcement during a period of time where, you know, I was the only female at my department for a while. I was, you know, one of, you know, a handful of females that were in my academy class when I went through basic academy. I mean, so, um, and I saw some, some, inequities, if you will, on how women were treated versus how the men were treated. Um, but it made me more determined to be successful. Um, you know, that I guess that maybe that's just my personality type. I'm kind of one yeah. of those when you tell me don't do it, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to say, watch me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, you know, and I think, but I also think on the other hand, I, I think that a lot of people think that you can't get into a corporate security role without a law enforcement background. And I see that that has really changed over the last 10 years that I've been in the corporate um, arena. It, you know, when I first went in, it was, Oh, so how long were you a cop? That was like the first thing people would ask, or what agency did you work for? Um, And I'm seeing a shift where we're recognizing that different backgrounds and different thought processes, especially in threat management, because it is a multidisciplinary um, organization, it, or it should be, mm-hmm. um, when you're running a threat management team, there's so many other ways to get into that particular aspect of security work. Um, for example, I have a I have a niece who is um, just finishing up college, very interested in threat assessment and threat management, very interested in victim advocacy work. Mm-hmm but no desire to go into law enforcement. Um, so she's actually going to be a guidance counselor at um, a high school where she can sit on the threat management team. So she That's still nice. gets to be able to do that type of work, but without having to have that you know, prescripted law enforcement background that so many people think that you need. So when you look at the makeup of a threat management team and you see forensic psychologists and you see K-12, some of them are teachers and some of them are guidance counselors. And, you know, you have your HR professionals and your associate relation professionals, you know, there's a victim advocate. So there's so many different avenues now that I think people can take to really um, prepare themselves for a career in, um, especially in a corporate security. Yeah. I I think that's such an important point um, because I, what I've seen in terms of the evolution of corporate security, sort of private sector security generally, is that there's much more appreciation now for a broad, sort of a real diversity in previous experience and in skill set. Um, so, you know, this day and age, I feel like threat threat management teams can really benefit from folks who are younger and more more adept and fluent in all the different social media platforms that there are there. Um that, you know, that that they have 
just as much investigative and, and analytic skills using different platforms than, you know, than, than I did from my, <laughs> my early yes. non-computer days. And, and, you know, just, you know, I still have a Facebook page, which tells you how old I am. Um, but it's, but there can be such, such an asset to bringing in people with non-law enforcement background, but who really do good research Mm -hmm. Uh, intelligence gathering, analysis, and then writing well, I think is a a skill that's so important for security professionals generally to to be able to to figure out how to convey the so what of the the work that they do. Yeah. Yeah. The intelligence, um, as a matter of fact, I've, I've, you know, been through mentoring folks who have an interest and it's like, okay, you don't have the, you don't have the law enforcement background. You don't have the, you know, detective background, if you will. But I, I, I tell people all the time, do you have kids? Because if you have kids, you 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 know how to stalk people. So <laughs> that oh, that's is, great. <laughs> if you have that that natural curiosity to figure things out along with that ability, then yeah. it is something that could be open that you can you know, that you can take that path through the intelligence piece. But it's I mean it's true. If you've got kids, you can figure stuff so out. So true. I think you could even expand that, especially if you're if you're a mother of kids. You've you've done executive driving. You've uh, yeah people safe in crowds. You've done event security. You really have done it all. Absolutely. Oh, that's wonderful. Wendy Bailey, thank you so much for joining the podcast for Women Who Protect. It's such a pleasure talking with you. And and I look forward to to seeing you at professional conferences down the road. Yes. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you inviting me here today. And it's been great talking with you. Same here. Today, we talked about the challenges of integrating information in investigations so you can have a complete, accurate, and up-to-date picture of your threat landscape. Ontic's integrated research product optimizes risk and threat management with identity, criminal activity, civil litigation, adverse media, and global public records coverage all in one place. For more information, please visit ontic.co slash demo. That's ontic.co slash demo. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Connected Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Roll the Dice and was written by Mark Wallach. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.co or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Dr. Marisa Randazzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>